let's face it, romantic relationships tend to consume much of our collective emotional energy. Sometimes we don't know where to find the answers. I mean, heck, often I don't even know the questions. Why is it important for women to support other women? <laughs> because it's what the guys do. A couple of years ago, I launched Pink Wisdom in my living room here in New York City. The best relationship advice I ever received was actually when I was married. I am happily divorced now. To create a space for lovelorn women to discuss relationships, love, sex, breakups. How do men respond to strong women and how does it affect? How do you get your self-esteem and your confidence back? Um, all that good stuff. I would bring in these incredible relationship experts to answer questions and offer advice based on their experiences. One of the best pieces of advice that I have ever received is actually from my mom. After you have been dumped, the best way to get your self-esteem back is to fall in love with your own life. So not only do I get to ask these experts the questions that you would be asking them if you were to meet them in person, I get to pass on all their well-earned words of wisdom to you. I am enough. I am worthy of love. When sex is good and easy and fun, then it's not that important. You have it, it's enjoyable, fine. If it's a problem, then it's a problem. That is just a little sample of what you're gonna get today in the podcast. Hi everyone, it's Allison Chase. When lockdown happened and we were looking for international relationship experts from around the world, we very fortunately landed on Michaela Baum. She is an Austrian therapist who is now living in Ojai, California. That's where all the cool kids are living. You know, Oprah has a house there. Anyway, she is an internationally known expert on intimacy, relationships, and sexuality. Her collab with Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop is very well known. Her book, The Wild Woman's Way. She does tons of online classes, workshops, and she's all about sharing practical rituals and exercises for intimacy and, and communication. In our conversation, Michaela shared some real insight on everything from embracing what brings you joy to affirming yourself. And a little later on the show, a special little bedtime story for you, my own COVID romance, so stay tuned for that. Without further ado, I'm very happy to introduce you to Michaela Baum. Michaela, how did you overcome self-doubt? And what advice would you give to others in terms of overcoming self-doubt? I think, you know, culturally, uh, the way I grew up being Austrian, there is definitely a tendency in Europe, I think in general, but certainly in Austria, where you err on the side of self-deprecating. Uh, you know, you just don't, you don't toot your own horn. You don't talk about how great you are. And as a result of that, having you know strong confidence or really stepping into knowing who you are isn't the, it's not a cultural thing and it's certainly not something that one grows up with because it's kind of considered a bit uncouth i would say i think when i came to the states which was when i was in my late 20s or something like that i had to really figure out how to own the things that I was actually good at because that's not that's not culturally something and it, I think it was a, a, a process of many 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 years when my experience and my expertise caught up with my let's say self-deprecating ways I could actually do it and that took uh, the process of 
consciously speaking about what I was good at, uh, which was not easy. And so, of course, interviews really helped. Right. So in my case, having to be public and actually making a stand for the things that I taught and believed in and am about definitely helped. And then I think the pivotal moment of self-doubt overcoming was when I wrote a book in English or English not being my first language and having to figure out, um, could I do it and doubting it all the way and then understanding that I actually could and that's that. So how could you do it? Well, I think in general, how one can overcome self-doubt is to really become clear at what you're good at. It's useless to try and override our instinct in what we're not good at by pretending we're good. That's just delusional. So I think the first step is honing in on what you're really good at. And that could be mothering a child. That could be being good at arts and crafts, it could be work related, it could be as a lover, you know, whatever. And then beginning to own that by speaking about it, by speaking to yourself about it, and by declaring that in subtle and not so subtle ways. So your internal and your external kind of lead up. <laughs> What's a time when you felt really stuck in your own life? Many times. <laughs> I think the function of living a life and actually developing as a human being means that you will get stuck on a regular basis. So I think the, the, the function of being stuck is the sign that you're actually wanting to develop and grow. So for myself, I would say that anytime I've gotten really stuck, it was in a moment where I needed to go to the next level and I didn't want to. So I had that several times at, in my professional life where I had to take it to the next level, but I hadn't quite grown into it. I had it with the book and I had it very strongly earlier in my life when I was in my 20s where I got myself completely stuck in not knowing if I should choose a career path or a family path and thinking that I needed to do it all. And my stuckness actually ended in me being so depressed for a moment that I couldn't leave the bed. That was really a pivotal moment because I've never tended towards depression and no one in my family ever has and I didn't know anyone. And so it took me a while to realize that not getting out of bed was actually a problem. <laughs> and so how I got myself unstuck was making a plan just for that day. So I would boil it down to the bare minimum and I would have a little list. I'm a big list maker here. This is, I'm still on notepads because I have to write it. And I would write, get out of bed, wash hair, have breakfast, go for a walk, go shopping. And so I would break the action items down into the smallest little thing. And then I would just drag myself along the list and then I would check things off. And every time I would check things off, it would feel like I've accomplished something. And I do that for pretty much everything in my life till this day. I micromanage myself and give myself the, you know, essentially check mark for having something accomplished. And hence, I don't really get that stuck anymore. 
What do you see as the contributions a person can make in the world? The question of what do I have to offer the world or what can I contribute to the world is a difficult one because in society certain things are uh, placed higher than others. And so sometimes it's really hard, particularly when we're young and we don't really know who we are, to choose something. I remember knowing really early with like 12 or 13 what I wanted to do, but I had no idea how to get there. So the important thing to know is we all have a gift and we all have something to contribute. And I would say that everyone has a gift and that some gifts are more well, you know, received by society, let's say. So making money is a gift that most people can quantify. But for instance, raising a child or contributing to one's family or having a gift for poetry or music or uh, collecting plants or whatever isn't quite as tangible. So how do you find what you're good at? Well, it's the things you already do. That's the important piece, right? So when you are looking for what can I do with my life and how can I actually contribute, you have to just look at what you're already doing. And that's a good hint. And I'm not talking about the things you have to do as a chore at home or something. I'm talking about the things you like to do. So for instance, I used to drive my parents absolutely crazy in Austria in the spring. I would go into the meadows and pick all the things that were edible out of the meadow and then make pasta sauce from it. It was probably god awful, but I was really into wild crafting and herbs. And I loved that. And so I would make dinner um, on Sunday with my, you know, foraged stuff. And that was a skill I developed for many, many years, cooking and collecting things and then growing things. And, and it was natural. It came natural. So the key is to find something that you like doing, that you're already doing, and that gives you joy doing, because then you can pursue and get good at it. I'm curious what your parents were like when you were growing up. What did they teach you? Well, um, I have to say my parents are incredible human beings and I could not have had better parents. And so both my father and my mother uh, taught me um, an incredible amount of very valuable things. But when we talk specifically about my mother, my mom raised my sister and myself uh, as a stay-at-home mother. And I think that was quite a sacrifice for her because she was extremely creative and innovative. And I've certainly inherited my kind of taste and my pillows and my, you know, redecorating from her. She was incredible at giving parties and coming up with food and hospitality and learning new crafts and arts. But she was also incredibly smart. So I would say the blueprint I received from my mother was that my mom made choices uh, based on what she thought best for the life of everyone, not just herself, because she didn't go to work. She didn't um, actualize herself in a career. She raised us and she raised us incredibly well. And I never came home without a freshly cooked meal from school. And uh, But she didn't leave herself behind. She was not a martyr and she made sure that who she was and how she wanted to express was uh, uh, expressed within the brief of what she did in the relationship. I learned a lot from my mother around 
making beauty and having beauty and the refined things that come with having a full life. My parents, I want to say that because that's very important, my parents are still married and they're very happily married and their relationship and the way they relate to each other and the openness and understanding they have certainly influenced my life path because I saw that as something that could happen in relationship. And I also saw that as a wider consideration of how you could li live life with some integrity. So <laughs> this is a big one, but how do you define love? <laughs> how do you define love? Well, as you probably know, the Greeks had, I think, six words for love. I'm not quite sure, but don't quote me on this. But the Greeks in many languages, the more poetic or, you know, developed the language, the more words for love there are. You know, love essentially ranges everything from the love one has for a god or a child to the love one has for a partner. And of course, there's also the obsession and, uh, you know, the crazy chemistry. I think that's the external part, but I think for ourselves to look at love as the goodness in ourselves that then connects with the goodness in other people and the compassion and understanding for the human condition in ourselves and then connected to other people, I think that would be my deepest definition of love, the kind of compassionate understanding for oneself and other that then blooms out into relationship, child raising, the way you cook food, the way you, you know, proceed in work. So that's, I guess, my definition of love. <laughs> this is a question we get a lot on Pink Wisdom. How can I stop pining after my ex? Um, put your attention somewhere else and put it somewhere else with a lot of discipline. It's easy to want to pick a scab like you had a mosquito bite and you have to scratch it. So it actually takes discipline to every time that thought comes up to put your attention somewhere else. And the somewhere else can be um, something of beauty. It can be something that's more of a spiritual nature or it can be something concrete to do. But you have to force yourself to have the thought and pivot to something else. Why did he ghost me? What's ghosting about? What should you do with a guy who ghosts you? Lose him as quickly as humanly possible. There is nothing else I can say other than when you understand your self-worth and the fact that there is a million men out there and the one who doesn't want you maybe wants someone else or he's just not a good guy, you must move on. Thoughts on this? Should you dump a guy who cheats on you? Absolutely. There's no reason to hang out with somebody who lies because once they start lying, they don't stop. And if you think that you can somehow do something to convince a guy to stay with you when he's already wandered somewhere else, um, it's a mistake and it uh, just wastes your time. Once again, when you're young, there's a lot of men. Some are better men than others. And when a guy cheats, he always cheats. I'm curious, what is sex like in Austria? You know, Americans have this image of sort of the free and open Europeans. I mean, what, what are the sexy vibes going on in Austria? Well, when I had sex in Austria, <laughs> which was a long time ago, 
because <laughs> I've left Austria a long time ago. Sex was not a big deal. Uh, so when you say how is sex in Austria, are there sexy vibes? People are quite open and relaxed. And I don't actually know what to say about sex in Austria. When I had sex in Austria, it was fun. It was easy. It wasn't a big deal. There was lots of uh, very open and good also kind of body relationships. So people, you know, would go naked and swim in the lakes and people were very free. So I don't know if that has changed. <laughs> I can speak about now, but when I grew up, it was definitely a fun, easy and not very upsetting or uptight uh, kind of a world. How important is sex? In relationships? I would say it's only important if it's not good. If it's good and if it's easy and if you enjoy yourself, it's not that important because when you look at the percentage of uh, sex you have in a day versus the percentage of living you do in a day, it's a very, very, very small fraction. So when sex is good and easy and fun, then it's not that important. You have it, it's enjoyable, fine. If it's a problem, then it's a problem. And unfortunately, a lot of people, and I've been you know, a couples counselor for 30 years, pretty much 26, when people are having problems and they really focus in on that, it takes the joy of the relation out of the relationship. So I would say if you're freshly dating somebody and it's not going that well in that department, or you might wanna consider not going further. But if it happens because you just had a baby and things happen, it's worth working on it. But it can't be the focus of the relationship because that's really, really unhappy for all involved. Why do women keep picking the wrong guys? Well, because we like a project. We are natural fixer-uppers. We like to find the guy who, when he's fixed up, is perfect. So we date potential. And in dating potential... We're making a really big mistake because while we're trying to fix up the guy, we're actually not happy with who he is in this moment. And we are also not accepting him for who he is. And at the same time, we're essentially living in the future and not in the present moment. So we all do it. We must stop it. It's very important. If the guy never changes from who he is and you still like him, great. If not, lose him. What do you think a woman can do to keep a man? Well... I mean, if you ask me what a woman can do to keep a man, culturally speaking, I think that's very different than the advice I would give. So I'm going to say both. Culturally, I think it's assumed that if you just give a man sex and uh, some excitement, it's going to be okay. But that is actually not true. But what is true about it is that what makes a woman interesting is if she has interests of her own. The worst you can do is wrap yourself completely into a man's life and no longer have your own life and your own interest. So in that way, it's true that some excitement and some newness is very important. How are Austrian women unique? What makes women in Austria unique? I think Austria is a very unique country in the way that we're a small country um, and we have a, you know relative affluence um, and uh, a very good standard of living. So one of the things that I've really noticed with the women in my country is that they have a fairly strong ability and like strength and perseverance and a strong nervous system. 
And so Austrian women, I think, are very powerful. And I don't think that they're always quite aware of how powerful they are. And so as I have to speak for all Austrian women here, <laughs> I would say as Austrian women, we have the ability to really show strength and perseverance. And also we're a country with a very great love for creativity and beauty and food and joy and the, the nice things in life, in music, in you know, in art. And I think that's something that we can really elevate in Austria as a people and as women. Of course, it's possible to bring forth feminine qualities or women's qualities and women's empowerment without emasculating men. It's only a problem when we think that we have to be men, but we don't have to be men. We can be women and unpack our unique gifts as women. And that doesn't affect men. It only complements and the uh, idea would be that we do things that elevate everyone, not just uh, one gender. And so, yes, I think bringing our unique flavor of beauty and creativity and strength does not emasculate men. On the contrary, it, it, it brings forth more in the men to want to meet that. Thank you so much, Michaela, and for all your wisdom and for being part of our Pink Wisdom Collective. Talking to you today inspired me to share with our listeners um, my own personal COVID love story, if you will. This is a little something that was published in Glamour magazine. Well, here we go. One of the things I love about being the founder of a women's support network is I get stories from women all around the world sharing with me their own personal love stories. Well, I have a little love story of my own that I'd like to share with you. So much of our lives have, have changed in the past few months. Like Routines have disappeared, daily rituals have fallen away, but there is one thing that's clear, that the desire for intimacy and connection has only gotten stronger. There is still love in the time of corona, and Here's my story. It's odd to have a man I don't know that well suddenly around all the time. It's 4 p.m. on a Thursday, and I've just made sweet, passionate love to Simon for the 20th time in six days. Now note, Simon is not my boyfriend. I met him on Bumble a couple of months ago. We'd meet every week or so for a low-commitment date, such as, you know, trying out a new restaurant conveniently next to my office or catching a fellow actor friend's show already on my to-do list, you know, with those occasional flirty text messages in between. I loved Simon's thick Australian accent. I loved how big his hands are. But what I really loved about him was that he was completely accommodating and put zero pressure on me. If he suggested a get-together and I responded with, you know, let's decide in a couple days, he was fine with that. If there was ever I felt I was in the driving seat of a relationship, it was now. So when Simon showed up at my apartment as ominous news reports of quarantine and self-isolation and possible death loomed, armed with three duffel bags filled with clothes and frozen meat, I thought, oh, that's cute. I, I, I guess it's good to be prepared. 
See, I, I hadn't really allowed myself to expect too much from any man, preferring to proclaim my girlfriends as my true soulmates and men as handy for dinner or a concert or a hookup. But that was then, and this is now. I mean, when the world feels like it could be ending at any moment, worrying that there could be someone better out there seems ridiculous when there's a sweet, loving, kind man right in front of me. I mean, admittedly, it's odd to have a man I don't know that well suddenly around all the time. Simon keeps telling me how beautiful I am and I haven't worn makeup in in weeks. Like many of you, my go-to quarantine fashion statement is a gray hoodie. There's no parties to take him to, there's no work to impress him. It's just us, a man and a woman, experiencing a -a once-in-a-lifetime event together. We're both middle-aged parents, and our lives normally revolve around our kids, but his preteen children are with their mom, enjoying a mountainside rental in Utah, and my 18- and 20-year-old sons are happily stuck in the Bahamas uh, with their dad and friends. I mean, everyone seems to be on the same page. Everybody's content to be where they are. The normal parenting trials and tribulations have not factored into our bubble. Is this connection forged by having zero other options what builds love? Or am I in some sort of dating version of the breakfast club? You know, when detention is over, will I go back to my old self? If my issues were intimacy, fear of getting too close, exposing my vulnerabilities for fear of getting hurt, or even fear of love itself, isn't this the perfect time to step up and see if I can act differently, love differently? I mean, I have nothing to lose if the world is going to end. What if I use this time for self-reflection, for clarifying my priorities and identifying what it is I really, truly want in this life? Love and connection. So it turns out Simon has quite a few desirable qualities beyond his bedroom expertise. He lives by a code of empathy and compassion, like for real. He grew up on a working farm and he majored in agriculture in college, and he's spent hours pruning my backyard. He can can fix a toilet. He, He gained survival skills working at a safari camp in his 20s. He's a gourmet chef, like literally, He's passionate about homemade soups, and he indulges me in daily games of Scrabble and backgammon. He's clean, he smells good, he chops wood, he tells hilarious stories that leave me laughing so hard my side hurts. He lifts me up, he spins me around, physically and emotionally. His self-proclaimed goals are to give and to love. While I'm constantly texting my girlfriends, he's trading jokes with his mates. And then all through this, he treats me like I'm some sort of movie star, paying attention to a background actor, like like he can't believe his luck. It actually feels amazing to be a team and fight the world together. You know, all those things that I decided that I don't need, but in fact I do. As I cozied up with Simon, my phone still lit up with texts from other guys I'd been dating. 
and I often wondered what it would be like to be with them instead. And I also wondered if Simon was staying in contact with other women. So I asked him, and Simon answered honestly, and he offered to let me read the messages that came through. And his gesture made me feel completely secure in his desire for me, yet provided that competitive edge that I seemed to crave when dating men. I began to realize I must treat this one with care and not let his kindness go unappreciated. So we're now months into this quarantine hookup. And as I snuggled inside Simon's warm, toned arms, he whispers, I'm falling in love with you, Allison. (laughs) They say miracles often arrive in disguise. They say growth is sometimes forced upon us. They say a lot of this and more. But what I say is, Simon, let's go back to bed and enjoy this moment together. And thanks for listening to Pink Wisdom. Pink Wisdom is produced by Kevin Seaman and Allison Chase with help from Zoe Sullivan. Engineering today by Andrew Thomas at Newhouse. And I'll see you next time on our next edition of Pink Wisdom. I'll see you soon.